This morning we're going to be talking about Ruth, so if you guys want to go ahead and turn there. My name is Lori Drake. Um, I'm excited to teach and afraid my voice is going to go out, so that's where we're at. <laughs> if everybody will look at their student handouts in the middle of the table, there, um, there's two main themes that we're going to talk about in Ruth. That seems really loud. Is it too loud? Is it too loud? Okay. Let me keep talking. Okay. Um, so at the top of your paper, there are two uh, themes that are woven through Ruth. And your first blank is a Hebrew word called hesed. H-E-S-E-D. Hesed. Hesed is this concept. It's What it is is the sum total of God's love. And not just God's love, but his patient, forever enduring, loyal, loving kindness. It's one word that tries to and capture this huge idea of how much God loves us, but not only how much he loves us, how much his love endures through all of our sin um, and and everything that we mess up, okay? Uh, We don't deserve that kind of love. So I tried to think of a picture to help describe this, and, and what made sense to me was that if we are standing here and we pretend like we're standing on the beach and in front of us is a huge ocean, okay? Most people have seen the ocean. It goes as far as the eye can see. There's no boats. There's no islands. It just looks like the world drops off, okay? If we pretend that this ocean represents all of God's positive feelings toward us, okay? So this ocean represents his love and his patience, um, his abounding steadfast love, all right? If I were to take this spoon right here and I would go over to the ocean and I would take out a spoonful of water and I would come over to you, I would spill the water because my hand's shaking so badly. Um, I would come over to you and I would say, is this ocean... In, in this spoon is this ocean water and you would say yes because I walked here's our ocean oh, I saw you walk. yeah oh, we got water I, and I brought you over here just say yes yes okay yes this is ocean water because it, it has all the particles it has all the components of ocean water it's got the water it's got the salt it's got gases and minerals everything that's in the ocean fish poop everything is in this spoonful okay <laughs> so nervous um but does this spoonful of ocean water really grasp, does it do justice to the magnitude of the real ocean? It doesn't, okay? So this spoonful is hesed. This is the, the one-word concept. It contains God's love and his patience and his um, all-enduring loving-kindness, all of this, but it really doesn't do justice to the magnitude and the vastness of God's true love. Does that make sense? So it's just one word trying to describe a huge concept, okay? <clears throat> the second theme that's in Ruth, is this idea of God's providential hand, that he is taking care of us even when we don't deserve it, when we don't see it. And kind of a theme sentence that I came up with was that God's providential hand is most visible when we choose obedience. Okay, not to say that when we aren't obedient that God is not providing for us, but it's when we choose to be obedient to him that we can really trace his hand through our lives. Okay. Below that, you'll see some blanks. Um, what we're going to do is, I'll cue you for this, but we've got two columns, one for Boaz and one for Ruth, and we're going to come up with some attributes, some characteristics that both of these people have that we can kind of see how we measure up. Because these are two very good people to um, emulate. They're very righteous people, they're godly people, and they're really models for both men and women. Um, and so we'll do that as we go along. So let's jump in to Ruth um, chapter 1, verse 1. And the setting, we're about a thousand years before Christ. Um, 
or several, a couple generations before King David. And what happens, the way this story is set up, is that we're starting out in Bethlehem, and there's two people, Elimelech and Naomi. They are husband and wife. Um, They are living in Bethlehem, but there's a famine in Bethlehem, which is ironic because Bethlehem actually means house of bread. But for some reason, maybe God is pouring out his judgment on these people because of their sins, so there's a famine. So Elimelech decides not to deal with the sin in their lives and in their families and in their countries, but he decides to uproot his family and travel to Moab. Moab is a country that is actually an enemy of Israel. Um, This is not a place for God's people. They don't worship Yahweh. They worship Chemosh. This is not where God wants his people to be, but this is Elimelech's choice. So he takes Naomi and their two sons, Kilian and Malon, and they move to Moab. They're in Moab for 10 years. Um, The two sons, Malon and Kilian, marry two Moabite women. One is named Orpah, and the other one is named Ruth. Exactly. You know the story. Um, So we are in Moab for 10 years, and throughout those 10 years, Elimelech dies, which is ironic because he was leaving Bethlehem to escape death. Um, He was relocating because of the famine, but he ends up dying anyway, and eventually in those those 10 years, both of his sons die also. So now we are left with just Naomi and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Okay, so this is where we are. Your first blank there, um, when we're talking about Ruth's story, we can identify and see that Ruth's story is is a lot like our story. Their story begins in death. Um, Their husbands, Naomi's, both of their sons have died in a matter of 10 years, and that's very tragic. When I was um, 10 years old, my father passed away. And I can remember, even at 10 years old, feeling like our house was different. I'm an only child, it was just me and my mom. There was a void. There was a heaviness. The air felt thicker. Um, friends didn't want to come and hang out at my house because it was weird. They didn't really know how to handle it. And so I can identify, and many of you probably can too, you can identify what it feels like to be surrounded by death and just going into a funeral home or visiting somebody who's just suffered a loss. It just, it's just tense. It's just heavy. You can feel the grief in the air. Okay. So their story is starting out in death. Your blank there is eventually they're going to meet a redeemer. That's your blank, a redeemer. We're going to meet our redeemer in Boaz, and he's going to bring us, he's going to bring this family into new life. Okay? If we take a step back, we can see our story also. Spiritually, we are born into death. We are born into sin. We are separated by God, and we meet our redeemer in Jesus Christ, and he offers us life and life abundant and new life. Okay? So we can see the parallels there. So what happens is that Naomi decides to cut her losses. She's going to leave Moab and go back home. She's going to go back to Bethlehem and to God's people, um, which is good. That's an obedient move, and we are able to trace God's providential hand because she decides to do that. So now we are, let's go down to verse 13 in chapter 1, and her two daughters-in-law are saying, no, we're going to go with you. We're going to leave Moab. We're going to follow you. We're going to go back to Bethlehem. And Naomi says, no, there's nothing for you there. Um, I don't have any more sons for you to marry. You need to cut your losses. You need to stay in Moab. Go back to your families. You're still young. Find a husband. Have a family. Make a life. There's still time for you. Okay? Naomi gets a bad rap a lot of times because she's, she's angry. She's um, holding God per- personally responsible. If you look in verse 13, she says, It grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
okay? And, and we think, well, she's, she loves God. You know, when bad things happen, we're supposed to have that joy and we're supposed to feel good about everything and everything's supposed to be okay. And we're not supposed to really say that. You know, we aren't supposed to say, I feel like God's hand has gone out, that he is oppressing me and, and it's not good. But when you think about everything that she's been through, we need to cut her a little slack. You know, in 10 years, she's not only lost her husband, she's lost both of her sons. And we all know what it was like for a woman to be without... Um, man's support in this time. This wasn't a good situation for her to be in. She's also um, probably felt conviction over living in Moab for 10 years now. She knew it wasn't the right decision to leave God's, God's country and God's people, but she followed her husband. <clears throat> also, um, you've got, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but if I go a couple Sundays without coming to church, I can tell. You know, I feel a little bit Different. Not that I feel more worldly or anything, but when I'm out of fellowship with God's people, I can tell a difference in myself. Well, she has been out of fellowship with God's people for 10 years. She's had no other than her family, which is continually dying. She hasn't had any of that fellowship. So all these things are kind of a part of Naomi now. So it's, we really need to cut her a little slack when we, when we see how she's responding. Your next blank there is a quote by Mark Driscoll. There is no suffering. There is no affliction, there is no weeping, no mourning, no, no shedding of tear or dark days for the child of God that is pointless, purposeless, and without merit. All hardship is used by the sovereign for his glory and for our good. All hardship. So in verse 15, we see that um, she tells her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab. Uh, Orpah says, okay, see ya. Orpah pieces out. She goes back to Moab. Ruth clings to Naomi. It doesn't say pieces out, but that's, that's the message. Um, so in verse 16, we see Ruth's famous verse, um, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. So this is evidence of Ruth's conversion. This is evidence of her conversion from Chemosh, which is the god of Moab, to Jehovah. So if... Ruth had stayed in Moab, it would have been Christian population one. There would have been no other fellowship for her. There was nobody left if Naomi was going back to Bethlehem. Okay, and isn't it like a new convert to just trust God? She's saying, let's go back to Bethlehem. It doesn't matter. Everything's against us. We're women. We're widows. We're homeless. We're penniless. We've got nothing, but let's go anyway. God's going to take care of us. Okay, and again, because of her obedience, we're able to trace God's providential hand through all of this. So these two women travel back to Bethlehem. It was probably a seven to ten day journey for these two women to go alone. These are very brave women. When she returns back in verse 19, the women say, is this Naomi? They don't recognize her because ten years of hardship have taken their toll on her physical appearance. She looks different now. Verse 21, Naomi says, I went out full and the Lord has brought me home empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. She tells them to call her Mara, which means bitterness. So Naomi is angry. And some people might judge her for saying, you're not supposed to do that. You know, we've already talked about we're Christians. We're supposed to have joy and love and peace. And we're supposed to say everything's okay. But I think she's back in Bethlehem, so she's with God's people. She could say, like we say all the time, when our lives are falling apart and people say, how are you doing? And we say, I'm fine. I'm good. Everything's okay. But she's not doing that. She's confiding in God's people. And that's okay. Everything was falling apart. There was nothing good going on. And so, really, we need to cut Naomi a little bit of slack. So at the end of chapter 1, 
our two women, Ruth and Naomi, are back in Bethlehem. So let's go to our chart where we're going to start listing some things about Ruth. We haven't met Boaz yet. The first two things we learn about Ruth is, one, that she's loyal. She clung to Naomi when Orpah tucked tail and ran. The second thing we learn is that Ruth is faithful. She's trusting God to take care of them completely when they go back to Bethlehem. So she's faithful in Yahweh. So chapter 2 is where we meet Boaz. Verse 1, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth. His name was Boaz. In verse 2, we see um, Ruth knows that they need money. They're homeless, penniless, all this. So Ruth says, let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. So your first blank there is gleaning. It's spelled G-L-E-A-N-I-N-G. So gleaning was God's way of providing to the poor. It was our first welfare system. What it meant was that farmers were not allowed to harvest the edges of their crops. Also, after they harvested the middle, they weren't allowed to go back and pick up the extras that had fallen on the ground. This was God's way of providing for the poor. So they, the poor would come to the edges of the field and they would pick things for themselves. It wasn't a handout. They were still working for it. But it was God's way of providing for them. So this is what Ruth is going to do. She's going to go to the fields and she's going to pick up the extra because they have nothing and they have no way of making money. And so she's going to take the initiative to do that. So um, it's interesting in verse 3 you see it says she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. I just think that's interesting verbiage. That she happened to do it. We all know that God is taking care of them and his providential hand is on them because they are being obedient. Um, verse 4, we see Boaz coming to his workers and he's saying, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. So Boaz is, is very caring. He's involved. He's, he's very wealthy, but he's still involved. He's not some distant dictator, some distant boss who doesn't care about his workers. So verse 5, Boaz notices Ruth and he says, uh, Whose young woman is this? And his head worker out there in verses 6 and 7 says that she came and asked if she could glean. At the end of verse 7, it says, So she came, and she has continued from the morning until now, and she has only rested a little bit in the house. So Boaz pursues Ruth. He walks up to her, and he said, he calls her his daughter. He says, Listen, my daughter. And he tells her to stay close. This is in verse 8. He says, Stay close to my young women who are also working in the field. He tells his young men not to touch her. That's in verse 9. In the end of verse 9, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So it makes you wonder, why does Boaz care so much about Ruth? You know, he's probably, this is not the first time that someone has come and gleaned in his field. And it kind of made me think about Boaz and where he's come from and who was Boaz's mom. Who was the mother of Boaz? Rahab. You're right. Was Rahab an upright citizen when we first meet her? No, what was she? Exactly. So you can see how Boaz, from his mom, he might be one that doesn't judge a book by its cover. Okay, we all know how Rahab's story ended. Um, So this is kind of the the background that Boaz is coming from, which may mean give us a little insight into why he's approaching Ruth like he is, calling her his daughter and taking her and protecting her. So in response to this, Ruth, in verse 10, she falls on her face, she bows down, asks, Why have I found favor in your eyes? In verse 11, Um, Boaz says, I've heard about you. You have a good reputation. People are talking. They know that you came back with Naomi. They know how much you've taken care of her. And in verse 12 is very important. It says, the Lord repay you. This is Boaz talking to Ruth. 
He sang a prayer over her. The Lord repay you for your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. That word wings will play a part later on, so tuck that back in your mind. So your next blank is that Boaz will eventually be the answer to his own prayer. Boaz will eventually be the answer to his own prayer. Again, we can see God's providential hand being visible because these people are choosing to be obedient. So let's jump down to verse 15. When she, meaning Ruth, rose up to glean, Boaz went to his young men and he said, um, let grain, in verse 16, also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So what does that mean? He's going to make it easy for her. Okay, he's allowing her to glean, but he's also saying, guys, just throw her a little bit. She's working hard. She's in a tough situation. Let's give her a little extra, okay? So your next blank is that um, he goes beyond the requirements of the law, because remember, the law just told him to let someone glean on the edges and the extra from after the harvest. So he goes beyond the requirements of law because Boaz is a type of Christ. Throughout the story, we can see similarities of the Redeemer, and we can... Um, kind of put Boaz and Jesus side by side and see the similarities in their stories. So Boaz is a type of Christ. So after, um, at the end of the day, Ruth goes home to Naomi. Now we're in verse 20 of chapter 2. And Naomi says, where have you been? Whose field have you been working in? Ruth says, "Um, I've been in Boaz's field. A light bulb goes off on Naomi's, over Naomi's head. And because she recognizes that Boaz is a relative, So in verse 20, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. So this is Naomi's first few steps out of darkness. She sees a glimmer of hope in their otherwise terrible circumstances. She identifies Boaz as a kinsman redeemer, because a kinsman redeemer was one who bought back. Kinsmen meaning they were a relative, and redeemer meaning they could buy back. So this would be somebody who had been very blessed by God so that they could bless other people. A kinsman redeemer could buy back people from slavery. They could pay off a debt that the person couldn't pay off themselves. Does that sound familiar to Jesus? Um, They could buy back people. They could buy back property. They could step in and really make everything better. So Naomi sees this as their way out. This is their hope. Okay, Boaz is their hope. So Naomi tells her, stay with him. Um, He's going to take care of us. And that brings us to the end of chapter 2. So let's go back to our Boaz and Ruth charts. I think it's on the other side. And what have we learned about Boaz? Well, we've learned that Boaz is caring. Remember, he came to his fields. He asked his workers, how are they doing? May the Lord bless you. They replied in the same. So he cares about what's going on. Boaz is a protector. And keep in mind, men, you're eyeballing the Boaz chart. And ladies, you're eyeballing the Ruth chart, okay? Boaz is a protector. When Ruth comes to the field, he tells his other uh, male workers not to touch her, to leave her alone, okay? He's a provider. Boaz is a provider. He provided, um, during the gleaning, he told, uh, he provided food and water for all of his workers. He provided Ruth with extra stuff on the ground for her to pick up. Also, Boaz is a man of prayer. In verse 12, the first time he ever meets Ruth, this dirty foreign woman who's never seen before, he prays over her. So he's a man of prayer. Ruth is hardworking. The servant says, she's come here, she's been working morning to night. She's barely stopped to take a rest. And also Ruth is respectful. When she first meets Boab, she prostrates herself. She bows down and she humbles herself before Boaz. So she's respectful to him. 
so now we are halfway through. And we're back at Ruth chapter 3. So this fast forwards a little bit. Now, Ruth has been working in the field with Boaz and working, 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 weeks, months. Now we're ending the harvest, okay? So Naomi realizes that time is running out because once the harvest is over, Ruth doesn't have a reason to go back to Boaz's field. And how is she going to get Boaz to be their redeemer? How is, you know, they're still homeless at this point for as far as we know. So she comes up with a plan. And in verse 3, she tells Ruth, Naomi tells Ruth, therefore go wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So she's got this plan and she wants Ruth to look enticing. Um, Thus far, Boaz has only seen Ruth working in the fields. Ladies, um, Julie, I know you do, do the yard work. Ladies, do do you guys mow the yard, do the the, the flowers, do the hedges, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> two hands. <laughs> How pretty do you feel or look when you come back in from working in the yard? It is not good, <laughs> right? You are ten kinds of nasty, you are funkified, sweating, dirty. This is the only way that Boaz has seen Ruth so far, and it's not good, okay? Men, do you see your ladies looking like that, and you think, yeah, that looks pretty good? No, you don't. You tell them to go take a shower, Okay. So Naomi is telling um, Ruth, Naomi's telling Ruth to go get dolled up, go um, take a shower, put on nice clothes, put on makeup, shave, use soap, use lotion, make yourself presentable to Boaz so that he will want you. <clears throat> Verse 4, he tells her, when he lies down, that you notice the place that he lies down and that you shall go in and you will uncover his feet and you will lie down with him and he will tell you what to do. Okay, we've potentially gone from a G rating to an R rating. This could go a lot of different ways. This is an incredibly risky move for Ruth for several reasons. There's a lot of dynamics here. One, she's a Moabite and he's a Hebrew. Okay, they didn't mix well. One is that she is younger, he's older. She's a woman, he's a man. She's poor, he's rich. She's an employee, he's an employer. Okay, so... This could go very poorly, or it could go very well. And she's pretty much just going to do it and see what happens. Verse 5, Ruth says, All that you say to me, I will do. So verse 7, after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, (laughs) he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So this act, this was kind of like a marriage proposal. It wasn't Ruth proposing to Boaz, it was Ruth proposing that Boaz propose. Does that make sense? She's offering herself to him. She's saying, I want to be protected by you. I want to be under your wing. And that's the symbolism here of bringing up the blanket and getting underneath. She's saying, I I want you to take care of me and protect me like this blanket is covering me. I want you to cover me. Okay. So verse nine, Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? (laughs) What is going on here? Uh, she replies, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. So this is a throwback. Remember in verse 12 of chapter 2, when we first met Boaz, and he was a man of prayer, and he said, um, I'm going to mess it up if I try to do it off the cuff. Um, He says, the Lord repay you for your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come 
for refuge. So she is saying, take me under your wing. Take care of me. I want to be your wife. We need help. I want to be yours. Do you want me? And we've already talked about this earlier, but that Boaz is, is able to be the answer to his own prayer. And if we take a step back from the story and we look at our own lives, I wonder how often we can be part of the answer for our prayers for other people. Okay, we're often so quick to say, um, you know, God, I, I just I pray that so-and-so would be surrounded by encouraging people and yada, 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 when we could take the initiative to go and encourage. Okay, we, we passively pass off things saying we're going to pray for this and we're going to pray for that, and we may not think of how we can be an active part because we all know that God uses us to minister to each other. And so something that hit me with this was thinking, am I being too passive when I'm praying for things? Is there a way that I could figure out how I can make things happen that I'm praying for. Does that make sense? Anybody else identify with that? Okay, so <clears throat> she asks him, um, take your maidservant under your wing. Verse 11, he says, I will do for you all that you request. Verse 12, now it is true that I am a close relative, but there is a relative closer than I. Tells her to stay the night. In the morning, he's going to take care of it. He's going to go talk to this closer relative. This is in verse 13. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, so he's going to offer it to another person. If he passes, then Boaz says, yes, I will step up and I will marry you and I will take over your land um, and your family line will be continued. Okay? So verse 14, she spends the night at his feet. Nothing went on that we can tell here. These are both righteous, godly people. In verse 15... Um, he asks her to put a shawl. This is coming up on your next blank. He asks her to cover a shawl. He gets up um, before anybody else, and he covers her up, and he tells her to go back home because he doesn't want anybody to see her. He doesn't want, you know how people talk. If they see this young Moabite woman coming out um, with Boaz in the morning, what are they going to think that happened? They're going to think the worst. So Boaz, this is your blank, Boaz honors Ruth by protecting her reputation. I'm a woman, and I want a man not to only think well of me, but I want him to want others to think well of me. Does that make sense? Boaz is a good guy. So she goes back home to Naomi, and she waits. Okay, so if we um, get into what's going on with Ruth right here, it makes me think of Carrie and Justin. Um, one of you proposed to the other, Correct. Justin, did you propose to Carrie? Yes. And Carrie said, yes. Okay. So you both decided you had this marriage proposal. You said, I love you. You love me. We're going to do this. Okay. What if Justin had said, yes, I want to marry you, but I'm going to go ask so-and-so, this guy you've never met, you've never seen, and I'm going to ask him if he wants to marry you, Carrie. If he says yes, then you have to marry this guy. But if he passes, then yes, I will marry you. How would that make you feel, Carrie? Yes, exactly. Okay, so this is where Ruth is. She's waiting. She doesn't know who she's going to marry. She hopes that it's Boaz, but it could be a complete stranger. Okay, <clears throat> so we're at the end of chapter 3. Let's go back to our Boaz and Ruth lists. This chapter has taught us that Boaz has integrity. Boaz was half in the bag, for all we know. This young woman comes, offers herself to him, and he doesn't take advantage of her. Okay? Not a lot of men would be able to do that. Ruth, we find she is obedient. Naomi tells her what to do. She says, okay, I'm going to go do it. 
Ruth is also submissive. When she encounters Boaz, she calls herself a maidservant. Um, again, the same picture when she, she bowed down before Boaz when she first met him. She's doing this verbally now. She's still saying that I'm your maidservant. So chapter 4, we're at the end of our story. <clears throat> what Boaz does is pretty incredible. He's, he's an honest man, but he's a wise and he's a smart man. He goes to this closer relative and he says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, this guy, he's not given a name. He's just a closer relative. He's not a very good guy. Um, Boaz says, I've got this piece of property, which is what belonged to Elimelech. Okay, he's got this piece of property. Do you want to buy it? And the man says, yes, absolutely. That's a good thing. I want more property. That'll make me more wealthy. Um, that'll make me, you know, more important in the city. Yes, I want to buy that property. And Boaz says, okay, but wait. It's not only the property. Along with buying the property, you have to marry this Moabite woman. Now, Moabite would have been a, a red flag right there. Okay, we've already talked about Israel and Moab. They don't get along. Not only would you have to marry this Moabite woman, Ruth, and have children with her, it also comes with a mother-in-law. Okay, you get Naomi too. So now you've got property and you have a wife and you get a mother-in-law also. <clears throat> so the deal isn't quite as sweet to him anymore. If he, he probably already has a wife and children, okay? If he marries Ruth and has children with her, these children have to share in the inheritance, so they get less, okay? So this isn't going to make the family happy. Obviously, if he already has one wife, he's going to come home with another one. That's going to be a little awkward, okay? He doesn't want to do that. It's going to make everything complicated. It's going to mess up his inheritance. So he says, no, I don't want it. You take it. So um, how Boaz, is, he's a good negotiator. He's a good businessman. He um, doesn't just go up and, you know, how he did it. He, he offered him the property, and then he kind of snuck in the rest. It was honest, but he, was, he did it smartly, okay? So now um, verse 9 the closer relative has passed. Boaz says, you are witnesses. I have bought all that was Elimelech's. When Elimelech died, the, the land went to Kilian and Malon, so they died. <clears throat> so now the land belongs to Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, um, the Moabitess, the wid widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren. And from his position at the gate, you are witnesses to this of this. You are witnesses this day. So again, because of obedience, we can see God's providential hand taking care of Naomi and Ruth through Boaz. So in verse thirteen, we see that Boaz. They are now man and wife. He goes in. Um, the Lord gives them conception, and she bore a son, which is amazing because she had previously spent maybe ten years with Malon and never had a son. So she's probably thinking she's barren. One time with Boaz and they bear a son. If this had not happened, their family line would have stopped, but now it will carry on and it will contribute to the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's pretty amazing. So now everybody rejoices. They name their son Obed. And Naomi is happy because now she has somebody who will take care of her. Obed will take care of her in her old age, which is what she was very worried about in the beginning. So now we're at the end of our story. And the only other time that Ruth is mentioned is in Matthew chapter 1. And you can write that down. And that's the lineage of Jesus Christ. 
Um, it was very uncommon for women to be named in genealogies and that sort of thing. But in Matthew chapter 1, I believe Rahab is mentioned there also. Isn't that right? Um, and so we can see how God's providential hand was visible because all of these characters, Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth, chose obedience. This one last um, quote that I came across, it says, mentioning, um, talking about Matthew chapter 1 and the lineage of Jesus Christ, it says there are prostitutes and liars and adulterers and murderers in Jesus' family, so come on in. There's room for you too, which I think kind of sums everything up. So to end on, again, we talked about in the beginning of this story that starts out in death, and, and all the men died and the women are left alone, and we move on and we meet our Redeemer in Boaz, and he offers this family new life and life that continues and, and contributes to the lineage of Jesus Christ. In the same way, we start out in death because of our sins, and we meet our Redeemer in Jesus Christ, and he brings us life and life more abundantly in new life. Okay. So as our application and personalization, um, look at the lists, the Boaz and the Ruth columns. Boaz is a model for men. Men are to be protectors and providers and men of prayer and um, generous and caring in the same way that women, and I didn't put this in there, but Proverbs 31 is a good place to go to see a list like this also. Um, Ruth is loyal and she is submissive and she's hardworking um, and that is a good model for women also.